You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Amen. I want you um, just to look around right now. Just look around at all the different people. And, you know, if you get eye contact with them, don't be embarrassed. Um, but sort of look on both sides. A lot of us sit at the same place each time, so we may only see the back of the same head every week. Uh, but go ahead, look around and, and see, okay, how many different people are there in this room? How many different people are there in this room? There, there are dozens of different people in this room, dozens of dozens of different people in this room. Somebody said when two people meet, there are six people present, right? There's each person as they see themselves. There's each person as the other person sees them. And there's each person as they really are. We are a group of very diverse people. We can't see into each other's hearts. We do know some things about one another. Um, each of us, though, has a different like of different types of music. Each of us has a different type of worship music that we like. Some of us like piano. Some of us like the organ. Some of us like drums. Some like guitar. Um, there's some of us who like PC. And there's some of us who like Apple. There's some of us who like Android. There's some of us who like iOS. There's some of us who like Chinese food, and there's some of us who don't really like Chinese food. There's some of us who love rice, and there's others who love noodles. There's some of us who like TV shows, and some of us who couldn't care less about TV. They have different tastes. We have different desires. We come from different places, we speak different languages, we grow up in different homes, we live in different cities, we drive different cars, we sit in different pews. It's amazing that we can get along at all. We are so different. And yet, God says that we are to be united and we are to be one. And so today, we're going to talk about true union and true peace. What does true mean? I mean, who gets to decide what's true? True means authentic. True means genuine. And to me, true especially means real. What's real? There's so many things in life that we might think are real, okay? But they're not really going to last. So for me, what's real is something that's going to last. And not just last for a short time, but last for all eternity. That God wants us to have something that is real and lasting, something that is true, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, not for just this season of my life, but to the very end of life, and not even just for the very end of life, but what is real is what goes on beyond this life. That real life is eternal life in my mind. Real life is not the kingdom of earth. Real life is the kingdom of God. And real life begins by being really honest with ourselves. And so we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to um, restart it now. We sort of took a, a break before Easter. And we're going to get back into the book of Ephesians now. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you'd open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And again, if you're using 
um, your phone or a tablet. And if you're using your phone, please put it into silent mode. Ephesians chapter 2. And we've gone through um, verses 1 through 10 already. And we've looked at that. But I want us to look at three statements that Paul makes that is true about each one of us as a way of of reminder and as a way of summary of what we've done so far in Ephesians 2 to get us to the point where we are today. So the first thing I want us to see is in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 that what's true of us is that we once were dead. We once were dead. Before we became Christians, we were dead spiritually. We were dead where it really mattered. The most true part of us is that we are a spirit being and that we are going to live forever. And what Paul says is what was true of him and what's true of me and what's true of you is that before we meet Jesus, we were dead. That's number one. But the second thing that's true of us in verse five is that when we meet Jesus, who is alive, as we celebrated two weeks ago at Easter and resurrection, is that Jesus is alive. He's alive today. He's alive now. And so what's also true of the believer is that they are alive with Christ. So they're no longer dead. That also is true. We are alive in God. We have a real life to live right now. Eternal life begins by knowing God today. But there's also a third truth, and that's about our future. And that's in verse 6. Is that God has already seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms where we'll be with him forever. And so what's also true of me and true of every other believer and true of you if you're a believer in Jesus is that your spiritual life is already settled. You are already have your seat reserved in heaven. Your home is already there. And when you die, you will be with God forever and ever and ever. That is true of you. That is your eternal home. If we were to look at a line that goes on from the point of the beginning of the time of earth to all of eternity... We're just living on a dot on that line. But the moment we die, it's the rest of eternity that we're going to spend with God. And that is what is true of every believer. And so Paul wants us to understand what is so true of us is what is true because of what Jesus has done for us. But we have to be honest. So just like Paul, he began with a sort of a before and an after picture. So before he met Jesus... He was dead. But after he met Jesus, he was alive. Before he met Jesus, he had no hope. But after he met Jesus, he had hope, not just for this life, but for eternal life as well. That God has given to us this hope, a before and after picture. Now, now we've gone through that in our very physical and visible way of us of understanding that today. We've, we've gone through a renovation at our church, Right? So there was a before picture, and here's one of the before pictures. Maybe you saw this sign all around the church. Wherever they were doing construction, they were tearing things down. It was danger, construction, keep out. So this is the before. There was something happening in our midst before the renovation. And this is one of the rooms before the renovation. They were tearing it apart. You see all the workers got their stuff in there. They've got boards. They've got a ladder. They got a a shovel. Uh, They've got hammers, electrical things. They're going to tear that place apart, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to dig a big old hole in the wall, all right? They're going to tear everything out. They tore out the cabinets. They tore out the rug. They messed up the walls. They did everything. That's the before picture, all right? 
And just like in our lives, there was a before picture. Things might have been a mess, but God did a renovation in our life. He brought Jesus in. And afterwards, there was a change. And so afterwards, this is now the new nursery that was that room. And you see the door there on the left that they've replaced the hole with the door. And they've put in a TV, and they've put in new toys, and they put in a new floor, and they've put in a rocking chair, and they've got all kinds of things in there for children. And it's a beautiful new place, and there's the other view of it. It's a wonderful new renovated room that can be used. That after things are done, things are so much better. God has done things for us. And so this is also important for us is to remember. I mean, we can enjoy what's new because we remember what was old. We can remember what was messy so we can enjoy that which is beautiful now. And so as we go into the scriptures, this is again what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to remember what we were before Jesus. So we're going to look at verse 11 through 12. I'm going to read it and you can follow along. So Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 12, okay? This is what God wants us to remember. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. We were different before. We were Gentiles. How many people here are Jews? Do we have any Jews, Jewish people, anybody of Jewish heritage? No, that means we are all Gentiles. We are one. We're all Gentiles. We are united by the fact that we're not Jewish. We are Gentiles. But Paul says we have to remember certain things. We have to remember that we were in a relationship with the Jewish world that was in conflict. We hated each other. So on the us side, there was a war going on. There was this animosity. So much so the Gentiles were called the uncircumcised. And the Jews called themselves the circumcision. They were the ones chosen by God. They were the good ones. The Gentiles were the bad ones. And the Gentiles, they were separated from Christ. They didn't know Jesus. They just hated each other. Jew and Gentile couldn't stand each other. Jews disliked Gentiles so much that when they traveled in lands outside of the Holy Land, when they got, when they were going to step over the crossroads into the Holy Land, they would dust off their shoes, they would dust off their clothes because they didn't want any Gentile dust messing up the Holy Land. They thought that a Gentile woman having another baby was just making kindling wood for hell. And so they said, you know, a Gentile woman could not be helped by a Jewish person in giving childbirth. They thought Jew, Gentiles were dogs. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. And that's pretty bad, right? Well, the Gentiles, they had their own way of dealing with the Jews. Um, they thought themselves as racially superior. They thought that all non-Greeks, in other words, all Jews were barbarians. They hated them. They thought that all Jews were actually enemy to the human race. They hated each other and they had prejudice and there was this hatred in our world today not just among Jew and Gentile but among Jews and Jews among Jews and Arabs among Arabs and Gentiles 
among Gentiles and Gentiles, among Arabs and Arabs, among people of all different races around the world. There is this continual animosity and brokenness and hatred. That's the before picture. This is our world, what it's like without Jesus. And not only that, there was a hollowness in their lives. Look again at verse 12. We see five things that is true of everybody before they come to Jesus. There is this huge chasm, this huge gap between God and man, between being with Jesus and being away from Jesus. So before we met God, we were, Paul says, we were Christless. We were separate from Christ there in verse 12. Secondly, we were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. In other words, we didn't have a country. We didn't have a God. We didn't have a king. We didn't have a protector. We didn't have a power behind us. We were also foreigners to the covenants. A covenant meant that the people of Israel were friends with God. That meant that we were friendless. We didn't have an eternal friend. We didn't have a relationship with God. We were also hopeless. We were without hope. We didn't have an anchor. We had no assurance that we would go anywhere after we died, at least nowhere good. And we were godless. We didn't have a Messiah. We didn't have a Savior. God wants us to know that that is the place that all the Gentiles are. That's the place all of us are if we are without Jesus. And that's where we were before we met the Lord. But not only were the Gentiles far away from God, but even the Jews, even God's own people were far away from God. They thought that being circumcised, they thought by keeping the law, they thought by the very fact that by ethnicity they were Jewish, that made it all okay. They were all right with God. But what God was saying to them is, no, you too are sinful. You too are separate from me. There are things in your life that you must deal with and, and change so that you will be more in line with what I have planned. And that is, and we see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Would you read it with me out loud? Let's say it together. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So not only were the Gentiles far away from God, not only were the Gentiles living with hollowness and hatred in their heart, but so were the Jews. And so this, this circumcision, this act of the covenant, wasn't just something that was to be done physically and only to boys. It was something that was to be done spiritually unto men and to women that God wanted our hearts to be circumcised to be with God. Because before we knew Jesus, we were far from God. And that's what we have to remember. God wants us to remember that. He doesn't want us to forget the bad state that we were in. A lot of times that really helps us. It motivates us to be sure that we continue to do that which is right. Now Paul wants us to understand that even though we've been far from God, we can come close to him. We can be truly united to him. And so what Paul wants us to know, what God wants us to know, is that no matter how far we are from God, he invites us to be united with him through Jesus Christ. I want to read verses 13 through 16, and you can follow along. Again, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus ends hostility. Jesus brings unity. And Paul says that no matter how far away we were from him, Verse 13, no matter how far away you were from God, now God brings us near for union. God brings us near to be part of his life. God wants us to be close to him, not far away. The Jewish people had their temple, and this would have been what the temple grounds might have looked like in Jesus' day. And it sits on top of Jerusalem on a temple mount. And um, if you look there, there, this would be the temple, okay? And the temple proper, the holy place, and the holy of holies is in the back. But what I want us to be mindful of right here is this wall. You see a wall that sort of goes around the temple? And it was called a soreg, or it's a low wall. And that wall was put there so that this court right here would be separated from this court. This was the court of the Gentiles right here. And so we can see right here the court of the Gentiles is right here. And it goes all the way around here. And this would have been in here, the court of the Jews. Now, it wasn't just a wall that would keep the Gentiles out. Actually, that wall was also to be a sign to, remember, to remind the Jewish people they had to be pure. So any Jew that was impure couldn't cross that wall either. And so that wall had a significant purpose. That was to teach that there was a difference between Jew and Gentile. But it's interesting because the fact that there is a court of the Gentiles was an early indication of God's prophetic desire to bring the Gentiles into his kingdom. But he wanted the Jews to reach out to them. But that wall was there to also remind the Jew that they had to be pure. And if they were impure, they couldn't cross that wall either. And so this wall was a wall that was to separate them, to keep them. But unfortunately, it became a wall of hatred. And so archaeologists have uncovered some inscriptions that were on that Sorig wall, that was that little wall on the ground. And this is one of the inscriptions. And what it says is, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That wasn't in the Bible. That was the heart of man. That was the anger. That was the separation that we're talking about. This is what God didn't want. He wanted the Jews and the Gentiles to eventually come together. But there was so much hatred that this wall became a symbol. It became something physical that they would use to express hatred to each other. Now, we've seen that in our own world today. Maybe one of the more famous walls is, do you know what that wall is? It's the Berlin Wall. Okay, And it was built in 1961 by the East Germans as part of communism. 
And it was built for two reasons. One was, of course, to keep people out. But the other reason was to keep people in. It was a jail wall. The East Germans were trying to escape to the free world, to be in West Germany at the time. And there were so many people escaping to get out of the persecution that the communists were bringing that the communists in East Germany built this wall. But it didn't last. In 1989, it was torn down. And here's a picture of that. And if you've been to the Reagan Library, you'll see a portion, a real portion of a Berlin Wall there. And there's a portion there that's been torn down so that now there was going to be access between the two countries. Between those people that were enemies could now be friends. Families that had been split up could now be put together. That the wall had been torn down, and this is what God wanted to do. He wanted to tear down the wall so that we could be united with him and so that we could have true unity with each other. And so Jesus' death brought down the wall. Jesus destroyed the barrier. How did he do this? Look in verse 15, the first part. By setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Jesus set aside, and some of your Bibles set aside is translated, he abolished. And what that means is he fulfilled and he abolished the ceremonial law. Okay? So in other words, there was no more need for circumcision. There was no more need for the ceremonial sacrifices or ceremonial washings. There were no more dietary restrictions. There were no more rituals. He destroyed those by fulfilling the commandments and the regulations perfectly. He perfectly fulfilled all of the moral law so that we wouldn't have to keep all of these religious laws. That Christianity isn't about keeping rules and keeping laws and, and doing everything the right way. It's about knowing and enjoying the love of God. It's about being with Him. It's about enjoying who we really are as true people. And the true people are referred to as a new humanity. We see that in the second part of verse uh, 15, where it says, His purpose, God's purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. It was Jesus who brings this true unity. And so in application, you think about all the division in the world, that what the Bible is saying is that politics will never bring it together. Finances will never bring it together. Peace treaties will never bring it together. The only thing that will ultimately bring unity in the world is Jesus. He is the one who could bring nations together. And we put it into a personal manner. We put it into just our own lives. If there's anybody that we have disunity with, I mean, it might be somebody as close as our parents or our children or a husband or a wife or co-workers or our neighbors or our roommates or our brothers or our sisters. There might be disunity there. There's only one person who can bring true unity in that, and that is Jesus. That's why he came. He came to make us brand new people, not Jews, not Gentiles. We call ourselves Christians. This is the new humanity. This is who God made us to be, a new type of people in this world. And he created us and he reconciled us. In other words, to be reconciled means he brought us together so that we are now all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one 
in Jesus. We're all one in Christ. This is the reconciliation. This is the bringing together. This is the unity that God wants for you and for me. And so if there's any place in your life, any person that you want unity with, it's going to come in a relationship that you have with Jesus, following and obeying him, and also sharing Jesus together in fellowship. So no matter how far you are from God, and many times as Christians we fall away from God, but no matter how far away we are from God, Jesus still invites us to be close to him because we are united in him. He himself is our peace. He is our peace, it says in verse 14. And Paul continues in verse 17 to talk about this peace. And this is the true peace that God wants us to have. So he doesn't want us to have just true unity. He also wants us to have true peace. And so no matter how far we are from God, he invites us to have peace with him through Jesus Christ. Let me read verses 17 and 18. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So not only are we united as one people, we both have the same access to God so that we both can have true peace. God wants us not just to have something that only lasts for a moment, he wants us to have something that will last forever. And so he does this in Jesus. In verse 14, it says, Jesus is our peace. In verse 15, it says Jesus has made peace. And in verse 17, it says Jesus has preached peace. That Jesus came to give us peace. He taught about peace. He preached about peace. He said that he is the way of peace. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and in me you will have peace. Paul talks about this peace that you and I want, and I would say that you and I need. Can you read it with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7? Can you see it? Let's say it together. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine just sort of like just sitting in that setting there on that bench right now? Can you imagine just sitting there and enjoying peace? And can you imagine that sitting on that bench with you is God? So remember how we began the service by thinking about any trials or any problems that we have? Can you imagine just sitting on that bench with that problem with God? And you share it with him. And he says, you know what? I got this. I got this. I can give you that peace. I will give you that peace that you need. I am with you. I am not far from you. I am near to you. You have access to be close to me. You can be with me at any time, sitting on that park bench, sitting at the beach, sitting in your car, sitting in your room. You can be with God and he with you and you will have this peace at all times, every time you call on him. Is it easy for us to do this? No. It is a challenge, but it is also possible with God. He gives us access to him freely 
and confidently we can go to Father, we can have the Holy Spirit, we can ask God to come to us, we can ask God to be with us, we can ask God for the peace that he alone can give, that he's got it. He will take care of us. He is our Lord, he is our God, and he wants to be with us. That the God of the universe can give us peace. We can have union and not have peace. In other words, we can agree to be together but not have peace. And if that happens, there will be tension, there will be fear, and there won't be any real fellowship or friendship. There'll be union, we're together, but we don't really have a good relationship. And that's not what God wants. True union would be sitting like on that bench with God, with Jesus, and with others. We're together in him. And we can also have peace, but no union. In other words, we just agree not to fight. We just agree that, you know, we'll be together, there'll be peace. But again, there won't be any true fellowship. And there won't be any true friendship. What God wants for us is to have a peace that leads to greater union and leads to greater peace. God wants us to come to him, but he also wants us to go to others to share that peace with them. He wants us to share and to be together with each other, to know this love and to know this peace and to know a union that passes understanding. There have been many moments in your life, probably, where you've experienced problems in discord. But you know that there can be just as many or even more moments of peace and of hope and of joy. God wants us to have this peace. He's made peace with us. A peace that gives inner tranquility. The word peace means wholeness. Do you feel whole or are there holes in your life? And where there's holes in my life, I know those are the places where I worry, where at nights I can't sleep, where I fear or I fret. Those are the places where I need peace. And the only person who can give me that peace is God. And the only person who can give me that peace is Jesus. God is with us. He promises us to give us this. This is his gift to us. He brings us together. And he's given us a physical way to experience this. He's given us a picture of how we can do this. And we find this picture in communion. And we're going to take communion together as a body in just a moment. But when we come to church and when we see these elements, what do you think of? When I was a little boy, um, and I'd go to church, and I'd see these, you know what I thought of? A little snack, (laughs) right? A little snack. I'm going to get a little piece of bread, and I'm going to get a little cup of juice. And um, the bread might be a little stale, but at least it's, you know, it's something to chew on. But at least the juice will be sweet. And I remember as a little boy, that's what I thought of. Okay, we get a little snack now. But I didn't know Jesus as a little boy. I didn't know what this meant. But as I grew as a person, as I became a Christian, I understood that this isn't just a snack. This is 
the banquet. Now, it's not a buffet. It's not an all-you-can-eat. But in this is a banquet of all that God has given to us. In this is a banquet. This is a feast. And the only reason we can have it is because Jesus gave it to us. It is a feast. It is a banquet of unity and peace. And we come together as a people, usually with sincere desires of goodness for each other at two places in life. One is a wedding. And at a wedding, you have that together. You have union. You have joy. You have food. You have drink. You have love. And everybody feels like one. You have a good time as you eat together. You dance together. And the other time that we have that similar type of union, but maybe not with so much joy or happiness as it may be, and that is at a funeral. And we come together. We come together seriously. And we come together with purpose. And we come together with love. The Bible tells us that it's wiser to go to a funeral than to a party. Why is that? Because at a funeral, we understand the limits of our life. And we can begin to understand the purposes of it as well. God has called us together not to just a wedding and not to just a funeral, but to a resurrection and to the hope of a new wedding, the wedding banquet that we will experience with God in heaven. And in that, we will have, I suppose, an all-you-can-eat banquet. A friend of mine describes heaven as an endless buffet where you never get full. Oh, that's pretty good. And you just eat all you want, you never get full, and you enjoy it. Well, right now, what we have, like I said, is we have a banquet. We don't have a buffet. Okay? There are two things. There is the bread, which is our food. And there is the drink, which is our peace, our covenant with God in Jesus that gives us peace. And I want us to experience this union together today in just a little different way. It's, it's not real hard. It's not real different. Maybe you've done it before if you've done it in other churches in this way. But it comes from the scriptures and it comes from what Jesus said to us. And he said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, it says, the Bible says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why are we doing this? We're doing this in remembrance of Jesus. This is all about what Jesus has done for us. He took one loaf of bread, and after he had broken it, he gave it his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. And so in just a moment, the ushers are going to come forward, and we're going to pass out the bread. But as you have the bread and as you have the plate, when you hand the plate to somebody else, what I want you to say is the body of Christ given for you. Now, if you forget it, it's right up there on top. Okay? 
the body of Christ given for you. See, this is an expression of our union. The body of Christ, one body, one Lord, one faith. This body was given for you and me. We come together. We are united. We have true union because of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to partake in this supper if you have truly given your life over to Jesus. And what that means is that you have asked Jesus to not only forgive you of your sins, but you have committed your life to following him as your Savior and as your Lord. You've repented of your sins. You've said you're sorry, but you want to follow God. You've given your life to him to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And if you've done that, he invites you to partake in the supper. But whether or not you partake in the supper, when you take the plate, when you pass it on to the other person, let them know that this is the body of Christ given for you. Would the ushers please come forward now?